0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the rising cost of living has topped the list of things that Canadians worry about most, but is Justin Trudeau to blame for this inflation? Also, new data shows that the economic recovery remains elusive for many businesses as rising costs, talent shortages, and debt load are hampering their ability to bounce back. Stephen Tapp, Chief Economist with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, will join us to talk about that. And is Canada going to be sending troops to Ukraine? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now
1: today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml
0: something i think we can all relate to is uh, the cost of living and inflation it's been uh, miserable for the last little while and of course a uh, poll that was done by the uh, ipsos folks uh, last week indicated that the rising cost of living is now the top priority for canadians worried about how we're going to get out of this pandemic and what's going to be happening going forward globals and gaviola has some details
2: You've probably noticed you're paying more at the pumps. Your grocery bill is bigger even though you're not buying more than usual. Even the cost of heating your home is rising. Now we haven't seen inflation run this hot in nearly two decades. An Ipsos polling released today shows concerns about the cost of living have now edged out some pandemic fears. It suggests that four in five people are worried about inflation making everyday things unaffordable. 25% of respondents say they can't manage higher costs because they're already stretched to the max financially. And 60% of people who have kids under the age of 18 are worried they might not have enough money to feed their family. Now, regionally, residents in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Ontario are most concerned. Anne Gaviola, Global News.
0: So what's to blame for this, and more importantly, who's to blame for this? Well, according to some conservatives, it's Justin Trudeau, of course. Although, as uh, Heather Schofield uh, from the Toronto Star explains in a recent column, uh, is Justin Trudeau to blame for inflation? Says that depends on which conservative you ask. Heather Schofield is the Ottawa Bureau Chief and Economics uh, columnist for the Star. She joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Heather, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today.
2: Likewise. It's nice to talk to people back in my hometown.
0: Yeah, good to have Yeah, well, Yeah, you're back here at least electronically anyway for the yeah. time. <laughs> Uh, there's always going to be some political bombast when it comes to finger pointing and things like mm-hmm. this. And, and as you mentioned in the piece, uh, I don't think anybody does it better than Pierre Polover, uh who's now the finance critic, of course, uh, in the shadow cabinet uh, for the Conservatives. I think he, he used the term, as you mentioned, they're just inflation and uh, in saying this is all on this government. This is all on Trudeau. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you point out, and as Aaron O'Toole pointed out, uh, there's a bigger picture to consider here, isn't there?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, Pierre Polyev, he 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 spins a good line for sure, and um, I think he's he's been very successful in getting, um, you know, everybody in the House of Commons to really focus on inflation. Um, not to mention the greater greater electorate. I mean, he's been um, flogging this horse for, for for a few few months now. Um, a few years, but probably. yeah, it's very complex. I mean, it's really there are so many forces at work here. You know, we're opening and shutting the economy. Um, you know, every few weeks it seems because we because we're dealing. With the pandemic still, and it's just wreaking havoc on prices, on shipping, on all sorts of things that play into play into inflation and where they're going. So, you know, for 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 Poilier to go out there and say, okay, this is all Justin Trudeau's fault, is a little bit simplistic. Like for sure, he's 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 going to want to to raise some you know political try to get political score political points off of something that that everybody's concerned about. But it does end up really simplifying the analysis.
0: Yeah, and, and as you mentioned in the piece, I mean, even Aaron O'Toole says that this is a global problem. Uh, but it, this is not to suggest that, well, the liberals are, are squeaky clean on this one. I mean, because let's face it, uh, their policies probably didn't start some of this. But uh, to suggest that they, you know these guys were totally oblivious to this, some of the stuff they've done here has probably fueled this, as it has in other countries, too.
2: Yeah, I mean, okay, so I think what's going on here is, yes, it's a global phenomenon, as aaron O'Toole said, and as uh, pretty much every economy, uh, economist will say, um, and as the federal government, the federal liberals also argue, right? There's, you know, higher inflation and in, inflationary pressure in the United States, it's higher than here, and in, in a lot of uh, rich countries around the world. Um, and it kind of, uh, you know, it stems from a, a few factors that, that are related to the pandemic. Um, one is, you know, so we're reopening, and then all of a sudden you have everybody Trying to do everything all at once, and so it, it, it drives up prices. Um, a second thing that's going on here is, is supply chains. We keep hearing, hearing about supply chains. I mean, you know, there's, there's ships stocked up in, the, in harbors and, and empty containers floating back and forth, and, and, and people can't figure it out because because there's just so much confusion in the markets, in, in trading goods back and forth that that you know they're having trouble figuring out how to make the system as efficient as it used to be. And then you know we've got uh, a lot of uh, central banks around the world that have engaged in quantitative easing, which means, uh, you know, probably I would call it printing money. Um, But they, you know, early on in the in the pandemic, eased the way for financial markets to make sure they they function smoothly and then use that same system of, of, of bulking up their balance sheets to make sure that uh, that, that 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 money f- f- flowed very freely throughout the pandemic. They're rating it in now. And in fact, the Bank of Canada is probably a little bit ahead of the curve there or, you know, rating it in faster than in other countries. Um, but, you know, in the meantime, there's a there's a lot of uh, a lot of economic stimulus out there.
0: There is. And, and I know that, uh, you know, from time to time you hear the opposition, especially the conservatives, saying, OK, the government's got Iranian spending. And and I know that every time people like yourself and some of the other reporters up at, uh, at Parliament, he'll bring this up and say, OK, which programs would you like the government yeah, to cut? Exactly. What what services, what support programs do you not want to put anymore? Uh, you hear crickets huh? because they, they don't really <laughs> want to go down that road, do they?
2: Well, you know, um, probably up to his credit has actually, uh, you know, over the, co- the last couple of months, I've been watching him very closely, and he's his, his, his analysis is becoming more and more sophisticated as we go on. Um, and so last week, he did say that um, what he was looking at, and, and I asked him, you know, like okay, you want the government to to control its deficits, but those deficits are huge because of all the pandemic um, pandemic programming and supports uh, that they put out there that his party voted for, right? So I said, you know, are you having second thoughts? Was that a wrong thing to do? And he said, no, actually, uh, that's fine, but there are a whole bunch of other, It's the, the big deficit is not just because of the pandemic pro- programs. And he's pointed to specifically the $100 billion in stimulus that the federal liberals put in their last budget. And the bulk of that is... Um, um, infrastructure and housing and also uh, child care. So there's $30 billion there for child care. So he's saying they shouldn't have done all that. And then, in fact, that's something that they had in their election platform, that $30 billion, But, you know, there's some there's some hypocrisy here because the the conservative election platform also had the same amount of spending that the liberals had. So, you know, when need to go out there and say they should cut spending when they're proposing the same the same level of spending on different things, for sure. But the same level of spending, same first first fiscal framework. You know, I I wonder where the where the where the sense of all that is
0: yeah and 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 you're absolutely right i mean the money the the amounts were the same the bottom line was the same Uh, the 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 daycare Mm -hmm. thing was different i mean because again the the conservatives were embracing one of their old favorites there of uh, tax credits instead of actually funding these sorts of things so there's a difference in ideology there but when it comes to the political spin as you as you pointed out in the piece though uh, and i found this fascinating too uh, pox on both their houses i mean Mm because the liberals don't seem to grasp this as well You know, when Christy Freeland was asked about this, as you mentioned in the piece, she started going into, well, basically the the liberal talking points, how we're going to supply, you know, the affordable child care and housing. Well, And that's great. uh, Two very, very important issues that are very much concern to the Canadians. But is that really going to address the inflation question?
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I don't see how, how childcare, I mean, okay, let's say in, in, in their dream world of, of the liberals, you have um, childcare costs coming down by half in the new year um, that, you know, as you say, that's wonderful for, for those families that get it, but will it help overall inflation? I mean, that's an affordability issue that that families have been dealing with for a long time. Um, expensive daycare, especially in Southern Ontario there. Um and, you know, people will have extra money in their pockets. Those families will have extra money in their pockets. And so, you know, okay, it brings down their immediate costs, but then they go and spend their money. And then it could actually, I mean, if we're trying to prevent people from spending so much money all the time because that drives up costs, I, you know, I'm not sure what how that how that pans out into inflation. It's a it's a pretty confusing single law, I would say. But yes, it does help people immediately afford daycare. It's just not an inflation-wide uh, you know, an economy wide thing quite yet. I mean, over the years, the liberals argue that um, that daycare helps women get back and mothers in particular, get back into the workforce and you expand the capacity of the economy. And that enables us to have a lot more economic activity in the economy before you start having an inflationary pressure. But we're talking years and years here in the best case scenario, right? We're not talking right away. And our inflation problem is right now.
0: Is the problem here, and you're right, this is not a, you know, a silver bullet here, but were we naive and maybe economists, maybe a little too optimistic uh, when we were in the pandemic, said, look, at, when we get out of this thing, uh, people are going to have all this money and they're going to go spend this. means, means businesses are going to reopen, restaurants are going to thrive, uh, we're going to be out there shopping and retail is going to be good and, and we'll all live happily ever after. And it's not happening. And, and yeah. the, the, the reasons why are very complex, you know, the lack of, uh, uh, well, first of all, it's, it's hard to get people to work these days. And then there's the inflation, there's the, the cost, and then there's, as you mentioned, the global problems. But uh, we, I guess, probably had maybe unrealistic expectations about how this was actually going to pan out.
2: Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, you know, the Tiff Macklem, who's the, the head of the the central the, the central bank, uh, said recently that you know it was actually a pretty easy thing to do operationally to shut down the entire economy. It's far more complex to open it up, especially because you know I mean just we have another variant on our hands here, right? And all of a sudden we've got you know flights canceled, and vacations canceled, and and everybody having you know second thoughts about how they get out there and and, and interact and, and spend their money at restaurants and so forth, right? You know we're going through that that whole thought process again. And you know, I think, yeah, initially the assumption was, okay, we would deal with with the pandemic, we'd all get vaccinated and we just kind of return back to normal. But in fact, that hasn't turned out to be the case. Um, And now, you know, there's all this. uh, There's another assumption right now is that we will learn to live with COVID and then our economy will normalize pretty soon. But, you know, okay, maybe we've learned to live with the old strains of COVID, but we haven't learned to live with the, the new strains that keep popping up. So there's a lot of volatility there and it's really wreaking havoc on our recovery plans and then you know, inflation kicks into it. We, the, you know, I don't think um, anybody expected inflation to be quite this high, and it's cutting into you know, it's it's cutting into plan, business plans. We have a labor shortage, which cutting into it's cutting into growth, and so that that whole thing of just bouncing right back to life after shutting down the economy is certainly not panning out as we expected.
0: Well, yeah, and it, you're right. It screwed up everybody's plans. I mean, you remember because yeah, I remember you were reporting on this uh, in in the midst of all that. We we're all concerned about the angst about how are we going to recover economically. Uh, and the mm-hmm. Bank of Canada said, "Don't worry, we're not going to touch interest rates." Don't ever. That's not even on the table. Well, now they're saying, "Yeah, about those interest rates." Uh, yeah. it, it, it's. I mean, because of what they see, they see the numbers too, and they figured, okay, uh, I know what we said, but this is what we might have to do.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we, there's always been a realization that interest rates were way—I mean, they were just you know essentially at zero um, or even below zero when you take inflation into account. Um, so you know, there's an expectation of, of course, they can't stay like that forever. So you know, the the question is really when will they start to rise? And it, you know, the the central bank has been giving some some clues um, so that you know, basically, they've been pretty transparent so that people can. Plan their finances properly, right? So, um, you know, it's looking like they were they're 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 going to start raising rates in the middle of next year, probably. That's what most um, most bank most analysts seem to think, and. So we have some time to prepare for that. But this pressure uh, to to, you know, do something about inflation right away is actually a pretty dangerous game for for the for the central bank to get into, because if they do move quickly on interest rates, if they move faster than that and jack them way up and, you know, get inflation totally under control they would probably create a recession at the same time, right? There are big parts of the economy that are still really hobbling and, and having, having trouble getting back on their feet. So I think, you know, the central bank is not going to want to move too quickly here. um, And they really do have to think really hard about when the point is that they jump in there. And they also want to give people ample warnings, ample warning, pardon me, so that they don't, uh, they don't get caught off guard and then end end up having to default on their houses or something.
0: At the risk, again, of sounding naive, is there a possibility, are you optimistic, that they can actually have, as you mentioned at the end of your piece, a, a, a serious discussion about about what's <laughs> going on here, about inflation and about what to do economically, instead of just, you know, name, flying talking points back at each other?
2: I'm not that optimistic about that. No, I mean, I think the, the part of the problem is because so much of the source of inflation is global. You know, the, the, to have this debate in the House of Commons is is it could be instructive and in helping people understand and perhaps not panic or, or, or you know, figure out exactly how transitory it is. Um, but in the end, you know, how many domestic solutions do we have to, for, for this? So, you know, if there's going to be a debate in the House of Commons that leads us to a solution, I'm not sure exactly what that solution would be. You know, the Bank of Canada has inflation in its purview, but they're not talking about that in the House of Commons so much. It's not a political, you know, they're, they're at arm's length. Um, The the federal liberals have started a supply chain working group, which I think you know that sounds extremely bureaucratic. But you know, perhaps they can figure out how to work out some of the kinks in the the trading system along with other countries around the world, and do something practical on on that front to get things moving properly. But again, that's the chances of that coming up in the House of Commons and and playing out in a in a a rational way. I think are pretty slim. I hate to be I hate to be discouraging about this, but that's that's pragmatic. Not discouraging.
0: More, more pragmatic yeah, exactly. than discourage. I think at this stage, and and I, I agree. I mean, there'd be wonderful things here, but I mean, some of these things, without trying to, you know, put anybody in, off, and simply say, well, there's not the government's fault. There's there's always going to be policies here, uh, but a lot yeah. of them are beyond our control. I mean, I, I told you the, the story the other week that a friend of mine that runs a car dealership, and he's you know, how's business? It stinks. And I said, well, what what would it take to get it back? He said, put some product on my lot. You know, yeah, I. Yeah, I, it, I exactly so i think
2: you know part of the part of the part of the tendency for politics to respond to inflation is to say okay let's give people more money if they can't afford things let's give them more money but for the for the guy who's trying to get more cars in his lot what's that going to do it's not going to help him at all right so so there's a there's a disconnect there in terms of solutions
0: heather great to have you on the program today thanks so much uh, for joining us on a very busy day appreciate it Uh, stay well and uh, (laughs) this isn't going away anytime soon so i'm sure we'll talk again soon okay take care Take care. Heather Schofield, Ottawa Bureau Chief and, of course, economist for the uh, Toronto Star. Uh, check out her pieces in the uh, the Star and the Toronto Star our, uh, chain to find out what's happening and uh, how the politicians are responding to
1: it. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML. I want to uh,
0: continue our discussion about economic recovery and what's happening here because this is having an impact on each and every one of us. Uh, things are not going as well as we had planned uh, during this recovery. And it's causing a great deal of angst, and uh, you know, as we as consumers are, are concerned about this, as the impact it's having on us with prices going up, we got a bit of a reprieve with gasoline prices, but I mean, we need businesses to start getting back on their feet. Well, a recent uh, survey that was done by the Canadian Chamber of Commerce indicates uh, that there are some concerns here and uh, some stumbling blocks that maybe we didn't anticipate that are causing some of the the problems that we're facing right now. Uh, Stephen Tapp is the Chief Economist with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce and uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the report and uh, maybe some possible solutions. Uh, Stephen, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today.
3: Hi Bill, thanks so much for having me on the program.
0: As uh, the old phrase goes, a funny thing happened on the way to our economic recovery. Uh, a lot, A few things here that we didn't anticipate, including things like inflation and rising prices.
3: Yeah, I would say, uh, so you mentioned before at the outset, this is a, a quarterly survey that's conducted by Citizens Canada. And so they, they survey 16,000 different companies. And so this is a, a really good way for us to get a window in on what's happening with businesses. And uh, as you mentioned, this basically the headline results from this is that the recovery in the private sector, part of the recovery for a lot of businesses is remaining pretty elusive. So you look at sales and asking companies about sales, about uh, 350,000 companies across Canada say that their sales right now are at a lower level than they were before the pandemic. So that's about one in three companies, and so obviously that's that's a a concerning figure. And there's, the shares of that are a lot higher when you look at uh, some of the hardest hit service sectors. So definitely a recovery that remains elusive for for lots of companies in Canada right now.
0: But as we were saying earlier in the program, Stephen, we were told, and I guess we all tended to believe, or wanted to believe anyway, that uh, that as the uh, the pandemic started to ease and businesses started to reopen, we've got all this disposable income that we've been saving because we, you know, we weren't spending it on anything during the lockdowns, and we're going to head out there, and we're going to shop, and we're going to buy things in stores. I, that's not happening. I, and I got to figure that one of the factors here is supply chain problems, but I don't know if that's the only one.
3: Yeah, there, so there, there has been some strength in demand on some goods. So some, uh, some durable goods, people have been purchasing a lot of things uh, on online retail and, and the like, but. Uh, really, when you turn to the supply side, as you mentioned, for businesses trying to get things together and get out to consumers, cost pressures have, have been increasing. So one of the top concerns right now, actually the top concern that we're hearing from companies, is that their input costs are rising. So that's probably not a surprise to any of your listeners now. We know that inflation is running right now at about almost 20-year high. So uh, input costs so for companies are are going up. Uh, they're having trouble hiring, so labor shortages. A lot of people have been hearing about those, but labor shortages are are real and are are tough, uh, making it difficult for companies. And the third big thing coming from the survey is uh, on and on the supply side would be the supply chain disruption. So global supply chains are under uh, significant pressure right now, and uh, a lot of companies are having trouble just accessing the inputs that they need to produce the outputs uh, for consumers.
0: And and that's not a a simplistic solution, is it? I mean, I I know that uh well here in north america both president biden and, and last week prime minister trudeau have announced that you know they're gonna uh throw some more money over at the west coast and, and actually put more people out there to try to get some of those uh, ships with all these containers unloaded and get them off into there and that that's good that's that's a good start to this uh but it goes beyond that doesn't it i mean uh, there's, there aren't as many of those ships and those containers coming over here because the, the production went down during the pandemic and they haven't wrapped it up yet in many cases
3: yeah, there's a lot of things that sort of cascade through. So they, people call these global supply chains for a reason because a, a lot of the, the issues that are arising now for, for Canada and for Canadian consumers, for Canadian producers are happening outside the border. So we have a lot of uh, sort of buildups and, and backlogs at ports. And uh, the, the U.S. West Coast in Los Angeles and uh, the ports around there, there were large backlogs of ships waiting to to unload some of their merchandise and that's that's where about 40 percent of us imports come in from the, the you know southern west coast so that's that's been an issue there uh our ports in canada actually the, the port of vancouver had been doing relatively good business but then uh, we come along now and you know we have we have issues with uh you know floods and climate change and, and all the rest of it and so some of those um, problems are, are kind of coming home to roost right now uh in canada
0: Let's, let's talk a little bit about the employment situation because that's, again, I think something that, that we didn't really anticipate was going to be a major problem that we figured as you know businesses started opening up that people would head back to work. Uh, it's not happening to the extent that uh, certainly employers wanted to see it happen, uh, and that's causing a number of different problems. Uh, as the survey mentioned here, uh, a number of businesses now are... are suggesting that maybe they have to pay more to their employees and 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 that's all well and good that's great news for the employees uh, not so good for the bottom line i guess to some of these struggling businesses these days uh some are even offering incentives these days which is something they didn't anticipate and that's an added cost uh to to the employer in situations like this to try to get people back to work uh as the benefits and the government programs support programs uh, start to uh to wear off and, and we reach those sunset clauses is there an anticipation stephen that that's going to get better
3: yeah, there, there was some sense uh, in Canada that some of the labour support programs, like the, the CRB, w- had been holding back uh, on some work- workers from, from re-entering labour force. We were looking southward, actually, to the U.S., where some of those programs came off earlier uh, earlier this summer. And what, what we didn't see, actually, was a very quick and rapid return in the U.S. economy to people coming back into labour force. So in Canada, some of these programs have been wound down about a month ago in October, uh, the CRB was, was expired. And so, uh, there, you know, we, we didn't see a big rebound in the U.S. context. And so looking forward, we don't have data yet. We're going to get some new data coming out Friday, uh, in Canadian labor markets. And that will give us a better sense of what's happening on that side. But we haven't seen, uh, much, much movement yet. Uh, one thing I would say about the employment side in Canada, we, we are doing better than the U.S. So the level of employment in Canada now is, is back to where it was before the pandemic. But we've just had such major shifts across sectors. So, you know, big big uh, difficulties hiring for uh, people in restaurants and bars is obviously difficult for them and in retail stores. And on the other side, people that are in high tech, IT, types of jobs that can be done remotely. Uh, those, you know, labor in, in those areas is, is doing quite well. So I think in, in general, what we have is. Now just a big, a big mishmash and, and mix-up between what uh, employers are looking for and, and the people types of people that are out there looking for jobs right now. It's difficult to you know bring those two together. And what you said companies are doing now, so companies uh, report in this survey there's, there's going to be pressure on wages. And so that's a good thing if you're out there looking for, you know, looking for a job. The labour market tightness is, is your friend. Uh, in terms of the business side, that that's going to be, again, on, on the cost side that's going to be input on costs. And So we may see some of that pushing back through to the uh, inflation numbers going forward.
0: How optimistic are business people these days, Stephen? I think that maybe that's one of the questions that we need to address here. Uh, we know, and I can tell you anecdotally from the number of the businesses I've talked to over the last well, twenty or so months uh, since this whole thing started, and we've gone through a couple of lockdowns at least in here in Ontario. Uh, they're in a hole. They're in, you know. And as you mentioned, part of it's it's because of the fact that business is down. Part of it's because some of them had to shut down for a period of time. Uh, so they're. I don't know if they're all swimming in Red Ink, but, I mean, they're not as profitable, if they're even profitable at all. Are they optimistic they're going to dig themselves out of this hole?
3: Uh, well, you're right. Profits are definitely being squeezed. So, the, again, we, we see costs going up uh, quite significantly. So that that's putting a, a big impact on bottom line. So in, in the survey here... About one-third of companies so that they think their profits are going to actually go down in the next quarter. So that's not overly optimistic. Uh, but your general question in terms of, you know, optimism going forward, what are, what are Canadian businesses thinking? There's a bit of a difference between what they're thinking in the immediate short term. So, you know, what are they thinking for the next three months? Uh, in, in that case, I would say, you know, business optimism seems to be fading a little bit, stalling out. But when you ask the same question over the next uh, 12 months, of, for 2022 as a whole, uh, we're certainly seeing that most firms are are relatively optimistic. So um, they're they're in a hole right now, and a lot of a lot of companies are saying that they can't take on any more debt. Uh, this is for the hardest hit service sectors we already mentioned, and and other other business groups that are you know traditionally under underrepresented. They don't want to take on more debt, or they can't take on more debt, so they're they're having some trouble. Um, but I would say there's yeah there's sort of a differentiation between the short term where you know there's a little bit of concern this this. Uh, New variant coming out in, in the COVID, uh, which is having people concerned, but hopefully getting beyond this with vaccine rates high, and then kind of moving forward. Businesses are hoping to get back to some sort of some sort of normal uh, some point next year.
0: Along those same lines, though, and I wanted to focus in on something that uh, some of us raised red flags about. This is going back, I guess, to the early stages of maybe even the first lockdown. Some of the government assistance programs uh, were deferrals on things like rent and, and 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 some other expenses like this. Uh, or, as you say, loans that needed to be paid back. Uh, My understanding from, uh, I just had a quick look at the the results of your survey here, a lot of businesses are, uh, they're concerned about having to pay back some of that money, uh, whether or not they're going to be able to, and how long that's going to take, and if they have to make those payments on top of all the other added expenses that you've just referenced over the last couple of minutes. uh, They're wondering, you know, is the government going to have to maybe just look at this and say, maybe it's time to forgive some of these loans. I know that's not something governments like to do, uh, but it's it's starting to become a major factor here.
3: Well, you no, know, you're right. I mean, I mean, about 20% of businesses say that they can't take on more debt. Uh, what was what was clear in the survey? So uh, the question was posed about how critical uh, these these programs have been for business survival, and it it varies a- across the sectors. But for some of the most vulnerable businesses, we've seen that these programs have been absolutely critical uh, for their business survival, and uh, well, they have been thankful and, ha- and happy to have some of the support. We see about 15% of companies are telling us they're going to have pretty big challenges in terms of just repaying some of that new government debt that they've taken on during this pandemic. Uh, so, in terms of you know what what can be done, what can government do to help the situation in the near term, and, and to help some government uh, some companies dig themselves out of the hole, is we're looking for uh, hopefully some some broader based debt relief uh, for some of these government support programs for for companies that really the hardest hit companies that uh, have been really in, a, in a difficult situation for almost two years now.
0: And I know that's, that's a sticky problem for governments because, you know, they're, they're they've are they're got shortfalls with revenues as well. And they're looking to recoup some of the money that they've sent out the door, I guess, in the last little while. But in the interest of trying to spur the economy on, I mean, it's going to have to be something that, that, that they're going to have to sit down with businesses and, and, and have a discussion about. Because, uh, it, as you say, if you can't take on new debt and you want to be able to hire more employees and as business hopefully picks up over the next little while, uh, these guys are very concerned about their bottom line and the impact it's going to have uh but you you're getting the sense that in the long term let's play the long game for a couple of seconds here Stephen. uh that most of the respondents to the survey think that yeah we are going to get out of this it's going to be tough i know that some of them are saying it could well be springtime uh before they even start to see some as they call green shoots of new business and things of this nature Uh, but they feel that uh, that in the long term we're going to be okay
3: yeah, I think in terms of the overall optimistic longer term message, like there are some some challenges that we see right now, which we view as temporary. So some of these input costs uh, issues are something which are uh, really being being brought uh, about by the pandemic. But labor shortages are expected to continue, these supply chain disruptions. Uh, most folks tell us it's going to last until at least the middle part of, of 2022. But I think the the green shoot side of looking forward when you ask companies, you know over over 2022 as a whole over the next 12 months, uh, are you optimistic and and most companies you know the majority of companies are telling us that, that they're either very optimistic or somewhat optimistic uh, so again i think you, you sort of look between where we're at in the the long games of, of this pandemic but going forward i think uh, most most businesses are, are hopeful that they'll get back to some kind of normal and that in 2022 uh, things will be better than they were in 2021.
0: i know this wasn't the focus of the uh, of the survey that was done here but i, th- I think it's a related topic do you get the sense that consumer confidence is still there? I mean, even if things start to look better for the businesses, uh, they're still going to be relying on our ability and our, our confidence to say, yeah, I'm going to go out there and spend. I'm going to go buy a big ticket item. I'm going to go buy a new car in 2022. Uh, but if we know that interest rates may be on the increase, and there's a lot of talk about that these days, uh, that can that can really, I think, mute some of that, that confidence that consumers have right now. Is that a concern going forward?
3: That's a good point. Uh, we have seen pretty significant drops in, in consumer confidence in the U.S. uh, business and sur- consumer survey. So that's, that's something that we're keeping our eye on. Uh, in the Canadian case, I would say Canadian consumer confidence is, is, has held up reasonably well throughout the pandemic. And in part, that's because some of the government support programs have kept incomes, uh, stable through the, this period. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ca- Canadian uh, consumers are are relatively optimistic. There are some savings on the sidelines, so we we do think again, getting through these rough patches now. But going forward, uh, people have some money in the bank and in, in aggregate, and uh, some of those big big ticket items, the big purchases, if they can. I mean, right now, trying to buy a, a newer used car, trying to buy a house, you've seen price increases, so uh, there are certainly some consumers in in the in the market and looking for these, but. Uh, also, difficulties with the uh, you know price increases that have happened over the last uh, the last few months.
0: Yeah, very important time. We're at a very pivotal time, of course, in the in this recovery. And uh, always great to know that the uh, the has got their finger on the pulse as to what's happening. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for the great work that you guys are doing, and uh, thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Really appreciate
3: it. Well, I appreciate your interest, and uh, thanks so much. We'll we'll try to get take to it. care.
0: You bye betcha. Bye. Stephen Tapp, who is the uh, Chief Economist for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, uh, keeping an eye on what's going on with consumer confidence and, uh, frankly, business confidence, which is a big part of this as well. You're listening to the Bill
1: Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: QAnon's Queen of Canada calling on followers to kill people who are vaccinating children. That's a post that was put up on social media a little while ago. Uh, we'll talk about that and the implications a little bit later on, but I want to focus right now on what's going on in Ukraine. It's It's been Well, for many people, I guess, out of sight, out of mind. We've had other things on our minds for the last little while. But now, uh, word is that Canada is considering bolstering its military mission to Ukraine, amid a debate over whether or not additional NATO forces are going to be needed to deter Russian President Vladimir Putin from further aggression along the country border between Russia and Ukraine. Joining us to talk about this and the implications, I'm pleased to welcome back to the program Marcus Kolga. Marcus is the director of disinfowatch.org. He's also a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute uh Marcus pleasure to have you back on the program hope you're doing well these days
1: yeah doing pretty well uh it's uh, always a pleasure to be on
0: well let me ask you about the Ukraine situation if we could first uh, the, because it's it's very troubling uh as, as we've sent you we, we've been focused on COVID and so many other things that are going on in our minds right now uh and it tends to to past any experience anyway teaches us uh that when we're focused on other things Vladimir Putin usually takes that as an <laughs> opportunity to kind of slide right in there uh the ukraine issue never went away uh we tended to lose our focus on this right now but he didn't and there's been a build-up there along the border how concerned should we be and how concerned should nato be at this stage
1: well good point bill i mean ukraine and and the problems that they're facing uh from from their east from russia it's a problem that hasn't been hasn't gone away uh you know we, we recall that in uh in 2014 uh, Vladimir Putin um, on the sly uh, just after the Winter Olympics in, in, uh, in Sochi uh, invaded Crimea, this is the peninsula to the south of, of Ukraine and and sent his forces into eastern uh, Ukraine. It's uh, an area that's known as, as Donbass. Um, you know Crimea was annexed. Um, there's been the simmering conflict going on in Donbass. Uh, there's, you know constant shelling. Um there are a number of Ukrainians who are dying every every week and are being shot by forces that are supported by Russia. So this has been ongoing for some time. And uh, as you mentioned, um, you know last spring already, uh, Vladimir Putin ordered the mass mobilization of forces on Ukraine's borders. Uh, you know, there were up to, at that point there were up to 100,000 troops that were that were stationed uh, along the border. Uh, you know, heavy sort of artillery, tanks, uh, aircraft, and uh, you know this the mobilization seemed to subside sort of in between. But uh, now he's ramped things up again. There's uh, at least 90,000 troops along the border, and uh, what's concerning this time. Is that the uh, U.S. government and some of our other allies have uh, have raised the alarm about a real potential conflict, and and they wouldn't do this unless they they truly believe that uh, Vladimir Putin was was up to something. Um, so there's been a lot of speculation as to to what uh, Putin might be up to, uh, whether it's a full blown invasion of Ukraine, which which seems sort of unlikely at this point but it is entirely possible that he may send his troops fully into the donbass region which is of course is this area in eastern ukraine that's been uh the subject of this simmering uh, conflict for since 2014 uh, and he may try to uh take that uh, that portion of ukraine over And all of that is to, you know, send a signal essentially to the West to say that, uh, you know, to push uh, the the West out of Ukraine and to for, for Vladimir Putin to to plant a flag in as part of his process to. Uh, regain, uh, you know, some of the control and and certainly the the Soviet uh, might that uh, that disappeared in 1991. So all in all, it's it's a pretty uh, deeply concerning situation. And, and as you mentioned, Canada is uh, is considering uh, moving some more forces uh, into into Ukraine, activating some you know a squadron of CF18s in Romania uh, in order to help deter with our allies uh, any potential action that Putin might take.
0: That, that's really the underlying cause here isn't it marcus although not the stated cause but it, it's pretty obvious from his actions over the last seven or eight years especially uh, that putin is is getting sentimental for the old soviet union and would love to re-establish it and, and he's, he wants to do this incrementally uh as you mentioned starting with crimea and he's got eyes and has had eyes on ukraine for quite some time
1: now yeah you know it's um it's part of the but his broader strategy and um and it's it's a pretty simple one. Uh, you know, his primary objective is is simply to stay in power, and uh, he needs to do this uh, because he has spent the uh, you know nearly the the, the past twenty two years um, stealing. Uh, Russia's wealth for him and the kleptocrats that support him. Um, his popularity is sagging because his economy is sliding, incomes are dropping. I was just reading a report how in the far east of Russia, in in, the re- in what they call the regions, um, there are people that are selling uh, um, their their kidneys uh, in order to just make make ends meet. Things are very. Uh, there's the situation, the economic situation in Russia is dire. Covid is hitting the country hard, and uh, and Putin is sagging in the polls. So when 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 that happens, as it did in 2014, what Vladimir Putin does is he lashes out abroad in order to hopefully you know distract the attention of, of his people and uh, refocus it on you know again that that past Soviet glory, um, you know, and uh, you know appeal to their emotions, you know, Russian imperialism and such. So this could very well, what we're seeing right now could be uh, a part of that. And it would surprise me if it, if it wasn't. Um, And uh, you know, it's proven that, that this works in, in the past in 2014, when he invaded Crimea, it's, it helped boost his, his ratings. He was in the thirties, went up to the eighties overnight. And so uh, all of this could be, could be part of that. But, you know, since we, we, we need to learn from history um, and I think we need to expect that, uh, that, that Putin will be, will be lashing out, uh, will probably uh, engage in some sort of, uh, or escalate the conflict in Ukraine, perhaps elsewhere as well, um, in, order to, uh, in order to remain in power.
0: Marcus, how committed uh, is NATO, and, and I guess more broadly, I guess the United States for that matter too, uh, to this project? Uh, because you know that, as you and I talked about, I think it was years ago now, Ukraine would desperately love to be part of NATO and, and 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 be part of that family so in other words an attack on one is an attack on all of us uh yeah. but I'm not so sure NATO's crazy about the idea. Putin of course would do everything in his power to try to prevent that from happening. Uh but I'm not so sure that uh, the that, that that the NATO folks right now are would welcome Ukraine with open arms. They've had the opportunity in the past and they haven't. Uh yet here they are s- supporting them. Uh that, you know that we can see anyway with uh, you know there are troop movements here although they... You know the, the the troops that are there, including the Canadian troops, are really there uh, in support of of what Ukraine is already doing there. It's a training mission, uh, which is a term they love to use in situations like this. But but would they be ready, willing, and able to ramp up if they saw something happening on the border with the Russian troops?
1: Well, look, I, the only sort of language that Vladimir Putin uh, understands and respects is force. Um, he, uh, you know, we can we can try to win. we have tried to reach out to him diplomatically. Um, the U.S. tried, of course, that set is now infamous uh, reset with Vladimir Putin, where Hillary Clinton had a, a big red button with reset written on it and was standing with uh, Putin's foreign minister. Um, Lavrov, uh, you know, the they, they reset and what what Vladimir Putin did was was exploit the situation um, and uh, had no interest in a reset. So, you know, standing strong. Uh, for for NATO, um, and certainly our allies is the is is the best way of deterring and that's the key word here is deterring um, any sort of aggression by Putin. And so I think that that Canada and the US would actually be wise, I think uh, they and other NATO partners recognize this. Um, And by bolstering our, uh, our troop number, our troop numbers, I mean, it doesn't mean that uh, you know if, if Russia engages that, that Canadian forces would engage against them. that's that's not uh, you know what anyone is saying. But to clearly you know plant a flag and say you know we're supporting Ukraine. We're supporting Ukraine's aspirations. And this is very important to become, as you mentioned, a NATO member, but also a, a member of the of the community of democracies. Uh, to become a member of the European Union um, and the Western world. Uh, you know I think that we need to support those aspirations because these are these are good things. that means that Ukraine is wants to share our values of democracy, freedom, respect for human rights, the rule of law. there are a lot of challenges in Ukraine, but they're really they're trying to work on them. and um, you know I think we need to demonstrate our support. you know the other the, the other point about NATO is that if we don't stand up, for Ukraine right now, um, what sort of signal does that send to Vladimir Putin? And what does what sort of a signal does that send to our other allies? If we can't, if we don't stand up for for Ukraine, um, will we stand up for the Baltic states? Will we uh, stand up for Poland who, and who are under great pressure right now? Uh, from a manufactured migrant crisis that's being created by um, Belarus's dictator Alexander Lukashenko, with the support of Vladimir Putin. Um, so, what what NATO does over the coming months um, is uh, is going to be critically important, um, and will set a path for for the geopolitical situation, certainly between the West and Russia, for for months, if not years, to come.
0: So, from a NATO standpoint, then Ukraine is the line in the sand for for them.
1: You know, uh, right now it is. Uh, you know uh, uh, you know as you mentioned and we all know nato uh ukraine's not a nato member so we're not obligated to defend nato but i think that you know deterring aggression against russia um in that context yes it's absolutely uh, a a line in the sand
0: is, is there a, a, a line to be drawn here and a parallel to be drawn here between russia and and their their vision of of where they see ukraine in the future the same thing as china is with hong kong that they say well you're really part of us you know you you know you don't realize it yet but this is it's inevitable i mean that seems to be the message and that seems to be the message that putin is trying to impart
1: to ukraine here yeah well i mean that's the the, the message he's been sending since 2014 i mean he's yeah. all along he's been saying that uh, ukraine belongs to russia if not directly at least part of its sphere of influence um, and that was why he you know, invaded Crimea. And he just said so again recently at, uh, at a meeting of his think tank, the Valdai Club, a few months ago, where he said that Ukraine is essentially Russia. But let's not forget, he's also said very much the same thing about other territories that were uh, once illegally occupied by the Soviet Union. This includes um, you know, the Baltic states, uh, Georgia mm-hmm. and Azerbaijan, Armenia. Um, he believes that um, all of these states belong to, to Russia, and, uh, you know, of course, you know, going back to the early 2000s, I mean, his we know that he wants to uh, one of his primary goals is the reconstitution of the Soviet Union. He called the collapse of the Soviet Union in 2001 uh, the greatest geopolitical disaster in history. Um, and so it's it's his objective. I mean, he sees himself as a great Russian tsar. He sees himself as the legitimate successor to joseph stalin that's you know the kind of narcissistic view he has as, as of himself and so when that's the way that you're you you see what you see in the mirror i mean you're 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 looking at someone who won't hesitate to uh to use uh aggression and violence in order to to um uh you know achieve his his that goal and, um, you know, I think if I'm if I were in the Ukrainian government right now, I'd be I'd be very concerned about about what's happening. And, you know, the fact that, again, going back to the, to the point that the United States has already um, publicly stated that they're concerned that that Putin may lash out, that's, um, you know, their alarm bells are going off in all the NATO capitals right now.
0: Uh, and by the way, just speaking of lines in the sand, Putin also says that a, a NATO buildup there would cross what he calls a red line and provoke an unspecified response Bombast or something to be concerned about?
1: Uh, you know, it's it's often. I think uh, Vladimir Putin says these sorts of things to test um, Western metal, and um, you know, I think some some governments might get scared off by this sort of thing. I think there there there's certainly um, certain uh, uh, military and foreign policy analysts in Canada that will argue that um, you know we don't want to antagonize or that NATO is antagonizing. Uh, Putin and that we should we should pull back. There's some that even argue. Uh, I think there was even an, uh, an NDP resolution at their last uh, national uh, convention that suggested that Canada should pull the plug on NATO altogether uh, in order mm-hmm. to, you know, find some peace with Putin. Um, that's exactly what Putin wants. Uh, so yeah, it's I think it's it's a lot. It's hot air. It's saber rattling, and you know we should ignore it. We should be standing for our values, which means you know if it's if we, we want to help Ukraine. Uh, in its aspirations to become a Western democratic nation, then that's what we need to do. I think the world's a safer place with more nations that share our values rather than one that's dominated by authoritarian mass murderers and and corrupt leaders like Vladimir Putin.
0: Uh, very quickly, if I could, I got a couple of minutes left here. I wanted to pivot over to what's going on with this, uh, these posts from QAnon uh, and, <laughs> and the concern that, uh, that we have and that a lot of people have right now as they watch some of these things. Uh, the self-appointed Queen of Canada, QAnon, Uh, sending out posts like uh, kill people that are vaccinating children Uh, time to arm yourselves and and take over and a lot of this stuff is people just dismiss and say come on these people are just crazy Uh, you know they're not serious and they may not even be serious about themselves in situations like this but as we saw I guess with January 6th uh, in in Washington Marcus the concern here is not necessarily the people that are perpetrating these it's the people that read them and and may take these to heart.
1: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the instinct for most of us who live in the rational um, world, where where facts matter and and you know where we have a shared reality uh, that is based on facts, um, you know, I think the tendency would be to dismiss someone like this as just being, as you say, um, just crazy. Um, the problem, as you you know, uh, as you stated, is is the fact that this person has followers. In fact, uh, on on this person's Telegram channel, they apparent, she apparently has seventy thousand followers, um, and there is a track record of some of those followers acting on uh, on her proclamations and her commands. Uh, back in June in in Alberta, there was a there was a group of her followers who um, entered a school. And, um and issue had these self- uh, printed uh cease and desist orders desist orders that were presented to the uh, principal of the school and they clearly disrupted and alarmed the teachers there just by marching into it um they they apparently uh, visited several dozens of businesses in in Alberta with these same sort of sorts of forms so the the fact that um you know this person's followers are willing to take action is concerning um you know the 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 proclamations that she's made over the past uh, you know over this past weekend, I mean, telling her followers to arrest uh, teachers, politicians, healthcare workers, and journalists to take over newspapers and and as you mentioned to kill to shoot to kill anyone who is um, trying to inject children under nineteen with the vaccine. Um, you know she's called it duck hunting um, on mm-hmm. on her posts, and uh, the fact that there are people, I've I looked at some of these, uh, the, the posts, and there are followers who claim to be in Canada who have taken photos of, uh, of various different hunting rifles, um, you know, these assault-style um, rifles that aren't, you know, semi-automatic rifles, and saying that they're ready and prepared to go on the duck hunt, um, yeah, that that should be of, of, of serious concern. Um, we don't know what, you know, if these if there are people that are already following her, I would question um, the type of uh, world that they're mentally living in. And if they believe that sh- this person is the, the Queen of Canada um, and have been acting out on her orders previously, then um, you know I, I hope that uh, the authorities are paying, paying very close attention to this.
0: Uh, we all do, I guess, at this stage. You're absolutely right. Uh, Marcus, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me on, Bill.
0: Take care. Marcus Kolger, the director of DisinfoWatch.org and a senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.